So Exodus um, chapter 5 on page 61 in the Church Bibles. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look at the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so they they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as you had when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding... Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy, that's why you are lazy. That's why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice the Lord. Now, get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. The Israelite overseers realised they were in trouble when they were told, you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has put trouble on this people, and you have not rescued your people at all. Great, let's just pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask that you will speak to us. We're in different positions Uh, in life and uh, in what we're doing at the moment, we pray that you will speak specially to each one of us about Christ, about your goodness, and about what this text is telling us. In Christ's name, amen. 
Well, it's good to see you all. Um, we're in the middle of a mini-series in the middle of the beginning of the book of Exodus. So the reason to sort of, uh, last week we were looking at chapter 4 of Exodus, uh, this week and a bit of chapter 3. This week we're going to look, look at chapter 5 and a bit of chapter 4. Um, and my thought is that by trying to look at the beginning of, uh, the middle of the beginning, uh, we sort of get a sense of what's going on uh, round about. So last week, uh, Moses was having a normal shepherding day when he walked along and saw a bush that was burning and was not being consumed. God appeared to him, God commissioned him, and he made five uh, excuses of uh, varying quality for why he shouldn't go on God's mission. This week, he starts going on God's mission, and it goes really badly. So that's what we're uh, going to be looking at. But before we get to uh, chapter 5... I do want to fill in what's happened between uh, where we left off last week and the beginning of chapter 5, where actually I want to tackle two things. One is the theologically hardest uh, thing in Exodus, and two is the weirdest passage. Okay, so that's just what we're going to do by way of preamble in chapter 4, or attempt. So I want us, uh, therefore, to read about the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and about a weird incident that Moses is involved in. And this comes up in chapter 4, verses 21 to 26. One of my aims here is, well, I I hope to move people now and the Holy Spirit will work on us now to do things, uh, move our hearts, but also just to help people with their Bible reading uh, when you go home and look at these passages again. So here we have uh, Exodus chapter 4. Context is God commissioned Moses He's about to go and get on with the job, and this is where we take up the story. Chapter 4, verse 21, page 61. The Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son, And I told you, let my son go, so that he may worship me. But if you refuse to let him go, I will, uh, so I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, cut off her son's foreskin, and touched Moses' feet with it. Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. She said, so the Lord let him alone. At that time, she said, bridegroom of blood, referring to circumcision. What? (laughs) It's there, it's there. Okay, so just going to have a few words about that because it's worth looking at some of the weird things from now now again, not just uh, skipping over them. So I'm going to start with the weird bit first. Um, Moses has been commissioned by God to go and deliver a message to Pharaoh. Now Moses, remember is going to be the lawgiver. He's going to be the person who's going to be telling people what God's laws are. Obviously, from the Ten Commandments, they were boomed from the mountain, but lots of other laws, Moses has to do it. So he's someone who really needs to be good on conformity. He needs to be good on doing things as they should be done. But he's been given uh, this commission by God who describes himself as the God who's self-existent and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, if you know anything at all about Abraham's life, you know that God made a covenant, a deal with him, which involved him circumcising 
the boys in his family. Okay? And Moses is about to go and deliver this message. And what's the message he's got to deliver to Pharaoh? Chapter 4, verse 22, 23. Actually, let's start with 22. This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. You, Pharaoh, are guilty of trying to get my son to work for you, right? And I've told you, let my son so that he, uh, go that he may worship me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn. And Moses is about to do this, but he hasn't given up his firstborn to the service of God. You see? So there's a hypocrisy there. Now, if God had actually intended to kill um, Moses, you can be sure he wouldn't have lived. But what God does is he illustrates very dramatically for Moses that he is in breach of the law. And by the way, his wife seems to be rather uh, better at handling the situation. Okay, so that's that. And there are some other weird bits in there, but I think we'll leave it there. Now let's go for the, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Notice God says he will harden Pharaoh's heart. And this seems to be something that is, is tough, isn't it? But as you read scripture, we actually find in the chapters that follow three different expressions. God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And it says, Pharaoh's heart was hardened and Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, what it would be really tempting to do is to choose the one of those three that you most connect with, that you most like and say, aha, that's what's going on. And then you sort of ignore the other two. But what I want us to see is that the way that Scripture gives us all three, and that Scripture has a special way of giving us a sense of who God is, often by the frequency with which it speaks in particular ways. And one thing that's really clear going on through Scripture is that God is a God who wants to save. We've been singing tonight that he's merciful, that he's long-suffering. These are the sorts of things which are characteristic of God, And him hardening someone's heart is a pretty rare event as recorded in Scripture. There aren't many of these. And I want to show you that this one is a bit of an exception. So for that, we need to go to Romans chapter 9. And Romans chapter 9, we're going to see what God is doing with Pharaoh. Romans chapter 9, by the way, the earliest manuscript of Romans chapter 9 is in the University Library. I'm sure you wanted to know that. Um, Yeah as is the earliest copy of the Ten Commandments in the world. You know, that's in the university library, but I'm sure you all knew that, didn't you? Right, okay. Nice place to live around here, isn't it? Um, Romans chapter 9, verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. What is God's reason for raising up Pharaoh? Not to damn him. That's not God's purpose. God's purpose is very specifically to show his power and to display his name. And I want to uh, argue that Pharaoh's in a pretty unique position. Now, there are lots of big empires and things through uh, world history. And arguably, Assyrians have a bigger empire. Babylonians even bigger. Persians even bigger. Alexander the Great, even bigger. Ottomans have a huge empire. British Empire, really big. But I want to tell you, there's something really special about pharaohs. Okay, Pharaohs, Egypt, 
They have pyramid-sized egos. There is something about that job that is just different from anything else. And what we see with, with Pharaoh is that this is so symbolically powerful. As we see, I think, even today, there's something different about a pharaoh from all sorts of others who have left a lot less in terms of monument. There's something about the just size of the statues that they would make of themselves. The number of times they would slap their names around everything. That there's something very big about being a pharaoh. And what we see in the Old Testament is that God pits himself for the greatest visible display of miracles that are recorded in the entire Bible against Pharaoh. That's what goes on Exodus chapter 7 through to 12. The big, the 10 plagues. We're not going to get onto those, but, but God displays his power in relation to Pharaoh. And it's, I, obviously I'd say the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a far more significant miracle. But if you're just looking for sheer dazzling size there's nothing in the entire bible to beat what you get in the book of exodus now does that mean god likes damning someone like pharaoh absolutely not we're told and it's very clear through scripture that god never delights in the death of wicked we're told twice in scripture he actually wants everyone to be saved and i really believe that god wants in a real sense everyone to be saved But what we've got to do is we've got to take the whole scriptural teaching together and recognize something about God's heart. And for this, we're going to go to page 994 of the Church Bibles and Matthew, actually 995, Matthew chapter 25, just to give you a sense of the sorts of way you might um, understand this as you look at scripture. Because what we're going to find is that as we read scripture, loads and loads more terms And active language is used for everything to do with mercy and salvation and God's heart for the lost. And then there are these rarer elements within scripture that are saying something uh, like, like the sort of thing we got in the passage today about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So I want to show that by looking at the story of the sheep and the goats. This is Matthew chapter 25 and verse 31. Just going to read a few verses. Verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now I want you to notice now what he says to each of these groups. Then the king will say to the owners on his right, that's a sheep, come, you who are blessed by my father... Take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. What's he say to the goats? Verse 41. Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. There are four differences here. One is, one group say come, the other depart from me. Just a little prepositional phrase giving you a bit more sense of distance, okay? Come versus depart from me. Then it's, you who are blessed by my father, but it doesn't say, you who are cursed by my father. It doesn't mention the father. Because the father's more involved and more active with blessing than with cursing. That's why, count across the Bible, you're going to find far more times God is uh, active, involved with blessing. And then it says, 
to the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. What's it say to the other group? Into the eternal fire prepared, and it doesn't say anything about from the creation of the world. So one group go to what God has sort of pre-planned, and the other group, it doesn't say God didn't pre-plan it, it just doesn't say that he did, right? And then one go, go to what's prepared for you, and the other group go, go to what was prepared for other beings. You see? So you've got four asymmetries. You can find those same sort of asymmetries in Romans 9, Romans 2, all around the Bible. And what that's telling us together when you take these things is God's heart is about salvation. So what we have here in uh, today's passage is a bit of an exception. That's all by way of preamble to Exodus chapter 5. Now, Exodus chapter 5 is a really easy passage to gloss over um, because despite our expectations that straight after God has given Moses um, a number of miracles that he can perform in front of Pharaoh... The miracles don't actually occur in this chapter. Don't worry, they will occur uh, by the end of of the book of Exodus. But actually what we have in this chapter is no miracles going on. We don't see that sort of thing happening. We might have expected a power clash between God and Pharaoh, between Moses and Pharaoh, and that Pharaoh would be wowed by the signs. But there are no signs here. But the result is we actually have a huge lesson. So let's dive in. Exodus 5, chapter 1. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go, so that they may hold a festival for me in the desert. So, the God of Israel wants his people to go out for a festival. It's a very understated approach. Moses and Aaron do not claim that God is the only God. They do not claim that he is the God of the whole world, They do not even claim that he is the greatest God around or a particularly great God. He's simply Israel's God. That's all they go with at this point. Now, Egypt's got lots of gods and pharaohs spend time appeasing lots of gods and having festivals for lots of gods. So why not have this God? Why not allow festival to be held for this God? That seems quite reasonable. I mean, it seems to me that um, Egypt, Egyptians are quite big into their, their festivals, a bit like Germans. They're very big. Uh, and uh, why not have another festival? And it's a pretty small ask. Not asking to leave the country, just asking to go into the desert to hold a festival. What's Pharaoh's response? He responds with contempt. Who is the Lord? Now, let's just think about this word, the Lord, for a moment. When you have in our Bibles, capital L-O-R-D, that's showing you God's special name, which probably means something like, he is. So who is the one who's like self-existent? Well, the point is, he's the self-existent one, so you really should know about him. And even it's pretty ironic uh, with our name, the Lord, because that means the boss. So who is the boss? Um, Well, Pharaoh, you certainly aren't. But he responds, well, I've never heard of him. Who on earth is he? Now, Pharaoh, again, that pyramid-side ego, is that anyone, any god who's remotely important, Pharaoh will have heard of, won't he? Because the world revolves round Pharaoh. And so anyone he's not heard of is clearly a loser god and can't tell Pharaoh what to do. At this point, Pharaoh rightly points out, I do not know the Lord. Quite, yes. Um, and then Pharaoh reviews it, uh, refuses and says, I will not let people go. Actually, you will. Um, but there we are. Moses and Aaron come back 
again with more reasons. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. He's asking specifically for a three-day journey. And if you don't, there's a risk to us that we won't get struck with plague or sword. Now, and again, notice how gentle this is. No miracles, but also no threats. They're not threatening. They're saying that the risk is not on you, Pharaoh, at this point. The risk is on us. You might lose some of your workers, and you seem to like workers. You're using the word workers a lot, and you seem to be concerned uh, about that. And they're just asking for temporary absence. So they deliver this message, and Pharaoh's ego just won't allow it. Who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him? And what we see is that alongside a huge ego goes devaluing people. So in response to his request, the request, Pharaoh makes it harder for the Israelites. Not just a bit harder, but impossibly harder. You see, their brick quotas would have already been basically at the maximum that you could get out of people. That's that's what they were working at. We've already told they've been doing harsh labor. That's what it means. They were working at the maximum. But here, Pharaoh is sadistic. He is enjoying setting them up to fail. That's what's going to happen. He is so important in his own eyes that however much suffering happens to little people, it doesn't matter. I mean, you look at how the pharaohs are displayed on monuments, and they're, they're huge things, and everyone else is little. Yeah, they're little people. It doesn't matter what they experience. Only if it gives some more pleasure to Pharaoh. Now, in many slave societies and, and uh, societies of oppression, they actually have two layers of uh, people. Here we've got the Egyptian taskmasters and the Israelite foremen. So it's a bit like um, in slavery as it happened uh, before the Civil War in uh, North America, where there would be people who would be overseers of the groups, um, and uh, also happened in concentration camps, Nazi concentration camps, that there would be those who, in exchange for a slightly better deal, would work as intermediaries from the oppressors. And that's what we see here. So we've got uh, Egyptian taskmasters uh, with their whips, and then you have foremen who are um, uh, Israelites who are, are somehow working with them. And what we see here is that these two groups are called in and told that they need to go and deliver the message, no straw anymore. I, Pharaoh, am not going to give you any more straw, as if like Pharaoh's been handing it out before. And they go out and they deliver that message in unison. The, the Israelites who are working with the Egyptians and uh, the Egyptian taskmasters deliver this in uh, unison. So you might think of these two groups as like together, but very soon we see that's going to break apart because in verse 14 and 15, it's these uh, overseers who are actually getting beaten. So collaborating with the Egyptians didn't seem to work. And at this point they complain and they go to Pharaoh and say, look, Verse 15, the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, why have you treated your servants this way? Now, a key thing to recognize is that the word servant is a word you use when you're close to Pharaoh. You want to stress how close you are? You say, we're your servants. So we're in a close relationship with you. Why are you treating us like this? At which point, Pharaoh delivers to them a new piece of perspective, which they really didn't like. And that is that they are idle. They had already delivered the message uh, to those who were under them that they were lazy. 
They thought they were accepted. They were just sort of collaborating with those older, uh, above them. But actually be told, as, as an overseer, I'm lazy as well, that's pretty hard. And they realize they're in a really tight squeeze. They leave the audience with Pharaoh, angry at Moses and Aaron. They're so angry, they're spitting, they're even mixing metaphors. Literally, you made us obnoxious to Pharaoh is you made us to smell in the eyes of Pharaoh, which is quite an interesting thing about Pharaoh's eyes smelling. But anyway, um, and you've, you've given uh, him a weapon and a sword and so on. And then we have how the chapter ends. <clears throat> we have this prayer from Moses. He's very upset. It's not going well. So what does he pray? Well, I'm going to paraphrase it. It's like this. Uh, he returns to the Lord, and this is verse 21. And we've got lots of whys, by the way. You know, earlier in the passage, like, why aren't you meeting your quota? Duh, that's really obvious. No straw. That's why I'm not in my quota. Why, why are you stopping people working? They should be working for me. And here we have Moses' why. Why, Lord, have you been so nasty? Okay, I think that's my paraphrase uh, there in verse uh, 22. Uh, Why on earth did you send me? That's also verse 22. Uh, And then uh, verse 23, ever since you sent me, it's got worse. And this is the last line of the chapter. You have not rescued your people at all. So this is great because this is in the book of Exodus, So it's all about how God brings out his people. But we've got this wonderful line of Moses praying to God and saying, you haven't delivered your people. Now, we know what happens after this. Like A lot of us have have read what's happened after this, or we, we know what happened after this. But here's Moses at this point. He didn't know that. And so we need to pause and reflect. Because while we know how the story ends... At this point, it looked really bad. God, he was happily shepherding, I would guess, out in the desert. God twists his arm to go and say to Pharaoh, it's not a job at all he wanted to do. He wanted every excuse not to go to Pharaoh and say, deliver my people. He goes to Pharaoh, he's faithful, he does what God asked him to do. And everything just gets worse. All of his people are in a worse situation than when he, you know, when he was in the desert. Than before, it was already bad. It has now just got far worse. No miracles. Pharaoh is winning. Ah, but this is the crucial thing. This chapter is not a representative sample, right? But he's treating it like it is. Now, it's a brilliant, I've got to say, a brilliant chapter division. I love, you know, God gets into action straight in chapter 6, verse 1. I love the fact that just, if you just focus on just chapter 5, then you can see it's a real mess. And I think, in some ways, that can speak to us in our situations. We can be in a situation like Exodus chapter 4, 3 and 4, where we're making excuses for not doing what God's called us to do. But sometimes we live in Exodus chapter 5, faithfully delivering God's message, and things get worse. And maybe they get worse for people we care about, and worse for them than even for us. And it looks like we've been set up by God. And the pharaohs of this world are getting away with it, not acknowledging God, treading down God's people. And it's like Exodus 5 on permanent repeat, like Groundhog Day. 
Well, we are called not to aim for success, but to be faithful. And this is the job that God has commissioned Moses to do, to be faithful. Things will work out in the end. They will more than work out in the end. They will work out so amazingly well in the end that it will go down in history. It will go down in history so that people will celebrate the Passover year after year after year until one day at Passover time, the Deliverer, Jesus Christ, would die, not defeating Pharaoh, defeating something far bigger, defeating sin so that life could come to the world. So what we're seeing here in Exodus 5 is just a tiny thing, a tiny seed relative to what's going to happen later. And, and where we're in now in life is just a tiny thing relative to what's coming in the future. It has been said by God that I hasn't seen and he hasn't heard the things that God's got planned for those who love him. Everything will always be at a more mind-blowing level Later, with God, that's the way God do things. He is the God of surprises, the God of wonders. We will be in awe in the future of what he's done, even more than we are already in awe at what he is doing. So, success will come, but on God's timescale, in his way. And often he seems absent, and we're looking at things on the wrong timescale. We're looking at things right now, and it may seem really hard right now. And that right now may go on for quite a long time. Longer than we, can, we think we can bear. But when you look at Moses' prayer, with hindsight, not actually in that situation, but after the situation, it almost seems comical. Since I've come, it's all got worse. You're not delivering your people at all. God is working out his plans. And one day we will look back on the pains that we've endured. And we will see them in a different perspective. Because God is working his purpose out to save his people, to deliver them and to do bigger things than we can possibly imagine. He will come through. Even people like Pharaoh, reluctant to acknowledge God, will acknowledge him. And all those who acknowledge him in the right time will find that he is more than any reward they could possibly imagine.